This episode is brought to you by the Women's Network. I still own this day, even though I have a lot of meetings with other people or I have a shift. um, It's still my day and it starts out my day and it ends my day. And if I need to cancel something, I do. Like, I don't feel obligated to um, suffer. And, And I say this because I think a lot of us are tied to Zoom. And, you know, it feels like often we don't really have control over our day. I feel that way sometimes, or I used to feel that way. And then I just started saying, you know what? I I can't make that meeting. I'm so sorry. I have five hours of meetings before that. And I just, I honestly need some headspace. And so I've been more strict about keeping my schedule tailored to fit a a normal, healthy day um, where I can get up, exercise, eat lunch, go for a walk, those sorts of things. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Redefining Ambition. I'm your host, Jamie Vinnick, founder and president of the Women's Network, the largest collegiate women's networking organization in the United States. Today, I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Adara Landry, an emergency medicine physician at the prestigious Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is affiliated with Harvard and assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Landry has an incredibly inspiring story, which I'm really excited for you to learn more about. After beginning university at the age of 16, yes, you heard that right, 16 years old at UC Berkeley, she experienced an enlightening moment that solidified her interest in medicine, which she opens up more about in our conversation. Dr. Landry went on to med school at UCLA, completed her residency at NYU, where she was named chief resident, and later completed a rigorous fellowship at Harvard Medical School. She has her toes dipped in many projects spanning across lots of intersections, education, technology, medicine, writing, and more recently, personal finance. In this episode, we talk about how self-reflection can inform meaningful mentorship, how she, quote, owns her day by blocking off time for herself and her family, and her viral piece she penned in Vogue about what it means to be a woman of color in medicine and why imposter syndrome might not apply to everyone. Hope you enjoyed this episode and make sure to follow us on Instagram at Redefining Ambition and at thewomens.network. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Adara Landry to Redefining Ambition. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I really appreciate it, Jamie. So excited to have you and I am deeply inspired by you and what you've accomplished and also a lot of what you've written about, which we're going to get to. You have so many titles from emergency physician to tech consultant to mentor to advisor, mom, wife, friend, lots of different titles and hats that you wear. What is a typical day? What's a, what was your Monday like this week? Honestly, a typical day starts with me looking at my calendar. I rely so heavily on my calendar. And and I have this mantra of like, if it's not on my calendar, I'm not responsible for being there. (laughs) And um, because that's what really how my days are started by looking at all of the um, meetings I have. I would say I even set time apart for personal space. Mm -hmm. And I book like my gym on my calendar. I book getting my eyebrows done. I I book everything. And that's really how I start my day by looking at the 
all of my obligations and things that um, I, I plan to do. A typical day, there's no typical day. Um, even weekends are varied here in this house because I have three young kids and I have different things that they're interested in and that they're signed up to do. But I would say um, I generally start with family time and I spend time with my kids in the morning, giving them breakfast and I'm getting them dressed. I have three kids, eight months old, three years old and four and a half years old. So they're little. And so we do breakfast and get them dressed and pack lunches and drop them off at daycare together. We do everything as a family. And then I start meetings and I have so many different types of meetings within one day. I can be meeting with my team at this ultrasound company I'm a consultant for, and I lead some teams there um, and I collaborate there. I could also have meetings on papers I'm writing with some of my mentees who are potentially in medicine or outside of medicine. Um, I might have meetings about um, some of the students I advise at the Harvard Medical School. I could also um, have meetings with like, I just bought a house. So we're going through um, the process of learning how to build um, a portfolio of real estate. And so we're learning all about contractors and uh, getting lawyers for those sorts of things. So I have meetings about that as well. Um, and then I would say I, I, I definitely try to book in some personal time. And it's really important to feel like I still own this day, even though I have a lot of meetings with other people or I have a shift. Um, it's still my day and it starts out my day and it ends my day. And if I need to cancel something, I do. Like, I don't feel obligated to um, suffer. And, and I say this because I think a lot of us are tied to Zoom. And, you know, it feels like often we don't really have control over our day. I feel that way sometimes, or I used to feel that way. And then I just started saying, you know what? I, I can't make that meeting. I'm so sorry. I have five hours of meetings before that. And I just, I honestly need some headspace. And so... I've been more strict about keeping my schedule tailored to fit a, a normal, healthy day um, where I can get up, exercise, eat lunch, go for a walk, those sorts of things. Yeah, you block in hour by hour throughout your day. I would, I would say the, the vast majority of my day from nine until five, there's something on my calendar. Wow. So I was talking to you before we started recording that you make time to go to the gym. You make time for self-care. You mentioned getting your eyebrows done. <laughs> and a lot of people would look at what's on your plate and say, I would not have had time to do that. So how have you been able to really develop this regimented schedule and make time for yourself despite everything else that's ongoing? So I used to believe in something called work-life balance. You probably have heard this concept. Someone probably has talked to you about the importance of achieving it. And so for many years, I really attempted to achieve this sense of balance where everything was equally weighted in my life and things were um, divided equally as far as my attention and my commitment and my responsibility. But I, I realized probably, I honestly think it was right when the pandemic, I think a lot of the, the pandemic has been enlightening for many of us in different ways. And for me, it was clear that work and life can never be balanced mm -hmm. unless I do one thing, and that is to practice self-compassion. And being really, really nice to myself has been at the forefront of how I work and how I start my days. 
And if, if I just push through pain and if I don't acknowledge stress, if I don't acknowledge burnout, then I'm not being compassionate to myself. And then, I, and then what's the point of doing all this work if I'm not happy? I mean, I, I came into this podcast happy. I'm going into my next meeting happy because I was able to do something for myself this morning, right? I was able to go to the gym. Um, I was able to spend time with my contractor and thinking about how I want to decorate my bathrooms. Like I was able to do things that are really interesting and fun and fulfilling for myself before I went back into what I would consider work. And so I, work and life really don't have to be balanced in the sense of 50-50. I think to me, it just, I have to have this continuous clarity that whatever I'm doing is bringing me happiness. Mm-hmm. And some days that might be all work. Like I might just have seven or eight hours of meetings, but I will be thinking about it as these, these meetings or, or these projects I'm working on these are the things I like to do. And, and in that way, I feel like I'm being compassionate to myself. And on days where I'm not doing work and I'm with my family, I'm doing things that I feel like bring us joy as a unit. And that's been a, a really um, pivotal moment for how I practice and how I'm able to pick up all of these activities is that I do things that really feel good, that make me feel like I'm treating myself the way I want to treat other people, the way I treat other people. I'm delivering that same sense of compassion, sincerity to my own well-being, to myself. I love that. I love that you shared that. So you have spoken previously about how, I mean, you have a very busy schedule. So does your husband. And yes. <laughs> he's, very busy. he's very busy. Um, he's very busy. Both of you are such a power couple and highly accomplished. But there's been a lot of conversation. I agree with you. I think the term work-life balance is very oversaturated. And there's been a ton of conversation about how often in relationships, especially heterosexual ones, often the woman is asked, how do you balance it all? And the man is often not asked that, at least at the frequency. So are you someone who felt pressure as to, I mean, even in your earlier years of school, to feel like you had to have this strike, this perfect harmony between socializing and your personal capacity, then also your professional aspirations? Or did you kind of wake up one time and realize this is not sustainable? How did, how Mm -hmm. did you get to this point? Because it's, it's nice to hear that, but there's a lot of pressure that so many people feel like I have to still achieve harmony in all these different capacities of my life. Yes. So perfection, excellence, those are, those are to me, toxic concepts. I don't strive to be perfect. I don't strive to be excellent. I I generally strive for for comfort, for confidence, but never perfection, never excellence. Because at at that point I'm, I'm losing the fun of it. That's my personal opinion. I understand that I'm type A and that I like things to be optimized, but I'm okay with, I, I'm just okay with being comfortable and with getting things done and with moving to the next task. And that has allowed me to avoid this like constant pursuit of excellence and everything being in perfect order. When it comes to, to navigating all of the demands I have, that is so helpful to think about. I'll give you a simple example of my daughter turning three about a month ago. And the old Adara, like the Adara who was in medical school would have wanted a birthday party that had matching everything. Her dress would have been exactly what she wanted. And that would have been me striving for excellence and perfection. 
but we had so much more fun by just going into the basement and like figuring out what old party decorations we still have and like putting those up together as a family and having like some things were zebras and some things were unicorns and balloons were not, I mean, but we just had fun that way. And so allowing, allowing myself just to be, you know, in the moment for the sake of just having fun and not proving that I could achieve it all and make everything perfect has been so liberating when it comes to the realities of hours that a work requires. I, when I was a resident, you know, we were working 18 shifts and on average a month. And so, you know, you can imagine 18 emergency medicine shifts, high stress, all sorts of emotions within a, a 10 to 12 hour period. And then coming back, you know, the next day and doing that again, it weighs on you. And so when I finished residency, um, I was a chief resident my last year, which is an amazing leadership potential, but it was a very busy opportunity. I went on and I did fellowship at Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is one of the Harvard Medical School affiliated hospitals. And I got a master's in education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And uh, I was working less and I, I loved the schedule being something where I felt like I had a period where I could recover from the stress of work. And um, that was like for a two year period. And then after that, I went back to full time. So that was like 12 to 15 shifts a month for a faculty member. And I just felt like I never saw my husband. I never saw my kids. And I was over committed, I think, to being in the workplace. And I was not able to scratch all of my other creative itches, writing, consulting, you know, personal finance, those things. And so I read this article um, from the AAMC that basically said 40% of women physicians either leave medicine altogether or go part-time within six years of residency. And I think I read it when I was like in year four. And I, I wasn't unhappy because I liked the actual technical job that I had but it was the amount of sacrifice it came with that I think it was really hard to predict. Um, to predict. So when you're in medical school, you know, I was like 24, 23 when I picked the field I wanted to go into, right? And here I was about a decade later, realizing that what I thought my job was at the time, you know, the actual technical parts of it, I, I had a good understanding of that. But I didn't understand what it meant to be in that job and be married because I wasn't married. Or to be in that job and to have kids because I didn't have kids. Right. Or at that time, I wasn't interested in writing or I wasn't interested in tech. So it's really hard to predict where you are going to be in 10 years. Imagine the job that you were to pick today, you are deciding exactly your career for the next 30 years or so. And you're sort of locked in that. And I picked emergency medicine. I did my residency in emergency medicine. And I felt like, oh, my God, am I locked? And then I saw that article. And I said, that is the escape is to either quit or go down. I didn't want to quit. I really didn't. But I knew something had to change. So I did go down. And I I feel like I'm just as busy hours wise. Like I still am like well over 40 hours a week in work. But it's not the same. It's not just like the clinical work, which is like, you know, hours that go until 2 a.m. or overnight or weekends and holidays. So I scaled back. And that article was so funny just thinking about how I read it. And then two years later, I'm like, oh my God, I became that statistic I was reading. But it was helpful for me because now I, I go to work. I honestly, 
I love work. I, when I'm there, I go to my shifts and I just feel like because I'm able to care for myself and I'm practicing that self-compassion I thought about, realizing that work-life balance doesn't work if you're kind to yourself. It just really doesn't. I, I, I have fun. I really do have fun when I'm at work. So you just mentioned something that a lot of college students have experienced and that certainly is top of mind. That is you feel like you have to figure out what you want to do for your entire life at the age of 18, 19, 20, young, young and into your life. And then you're locked in and you just expressed you have interests beyond medicine, consulting, personal finance, writing, um, education, teaching, advising, mentorship, lots of other areas that allow you to um, get involved in, participate in and express creativity. When you were in college, you attended UC Berkeley. Also, prior to that, you entered high school at the age of 12 years old. You're the first Black uh, student to be elected student body president. You went off to UC Berkeley at a really young age. I'm sure you're one of the younger ones at university. Um, You ended up studying molecular bio and African-American studies. At the time, did you have an interest in medicine. And I would love to hear the story, one particular story about what sparked that interest. Thank you for that summary. Um, I was always interested in in healthcare. Um, I grew up in an environment where many of my relatives had poor health literacy, understanding of how to navigate the system and watching their health decline because of a healthcare system that was rooted in many racist practices, failing multiple relatives of mine. And so I became acutely aware of the importance of diversity when it comes to physician presence and representation. So I was always interested. I think I came in pre-med. I think what made me feel really tied to the field was when I was walking down the street in college, I was taking a summer class, and writing actually, which is really funny. And there was a, a classmate of mine, I didn't actually realize he was a classmate until later, but a classmate of mine who was um, on the floor, unresponsive and seizing. I walked up to this crowd of people. I saw what they were looking at. They were staring at him on the floor, seizing. And everyone was just sort of in shock. And I had absolutely no medical knowledge at the time. I think I might've been 17 years old, but I remember telling someone like, call 911 and like rolling him to the side and um, just sort of like holding his hand and, and just telling him you're going to be okay. And, and I didn't say much, you know, so he stopped seizing. I was still there, you know, holding his hand. I noticed that he had a bracelet on his wrist that said diabetic. And when, you know, when the EMTs arrived, I told them like, oh, this, 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 he was seizing and I rolled him to the side and he has a bracelet that says diabetes. So I knew what diabetes was, I mean, I knew it was something with the sugar being off and I, but I didn't know necessarily how to treat it in in an emergency. And so I watched the EMT, you know, give him a, a, a load of glucose basically. And he perked up slowly, but he was able to, you know, by the time they they were having him on the stretcher in the back of the truck, um, he was awake. He saw me. I was still holding his hand at that time. And he was like, thank you. And it was, you know, it was a very touching moment. I remember walking away thinking like, oh my gosh, like that was such an adrenaline rush, but a fun one to like see how I can help someone in in an emergency. And it's funny because I wasn't necessarily thinking emergency medicine at that point, but it is what I ended up doing. 
And the next day or a couple of days later, I, I come back to the classroom and there was like a huge bouquet of flowers and a note from him. Um, his name was Barry that was like thanking me for just being present. I mean, I, I provided him no care, but I, maybe the rolling part, if he had vomited, that would have been technically, you know, that's medical care, right. From keeping someone from aspirating, but, but I, I didn't, I didn't provide any like serious medical care, but he was so thankful of just the presence. And honestly, being a doctor is truly an, an investment of your emotions into someone else's well-being. And really understanding that this stranger in front of you, who you've never met, all right? I mean, I didn't really know him. And many people I don't know, right? Actually, most of my patients I've never seen before. But feeling this like emotional connection to someone who is truly a stranger. There aren't many jobs that there's that emotional connection. Like, oh my God, I I so hope you are safe. And I so hope your kids still have a parent. Right. Like most jobs, I'm not trying to belittle them, but they're more transactional. Like I, I, I would like for you to have this house. You will be comfortable there and, and I make money. And, and so this is like a different environment for me in that I, I, I do feel like my emotions affect their outcome. That's an incredible story. Wow. That is so powerful. So you had this experience, you ended up graduating. And you took a gap year before going off to UCLA uh, med school. When you were in undergrad, you, and I want to get to the, the role and the power of mentorship. I want to better understand what, at the time, the situation you were in. Did you have anyone in your life or at the time, a mentor, mentors who were encouraging you to either apply to med school or take a gap year, advising you, providing more insight as to how to go through the process of medical school or were you were someone who was either reliant on peers or even yourself trying to figure this out? Um, so there were resources at Berkeley. There was um, an organization that I believe is still present called the Biology Scholars Program. And in that organization, we had some tutoring for like our early pre-med courses, like Bio 1A um, and, you know, Math 1A kind of thing. And from an academic performance standpoint, I thought it was amazing. And from a peer-to-peer standpoint, I thought it was amazing because a lot of the students I studied with were obviously my peers directly. They were in my classes. And a lot of the students who were teaching the courses were you know, students who had just taken it the semester before or, or one year before. So I thought that from a peer-to-peer standpoint, I was well supported. Um, and um, I was able to get some guidance from that standpoint. But they were also trying to figure it out themselves. Like we're all, you know, mo- most of us were first-generation um, college students or pre-med. And so we didn't necessarily have parents at home who would be able to say, should I take Bio 1A with Math 1A? Or do you think I should do, like my parents wouldn't have been able to help that with that answer, you know, not like how I will be able to help my kids figure that out. But from a faculty standpoint, though they were, they were nice people, of course, and supportive people, there just weren't enough of them to be able to give us one-on-one mentorship. And, and it really wasn't their responsibility to assume that they have to make sure that Adara as an individual gets a 4.0 or whatever GPA she's striving for and gets into her medical school. Not like how a mentor might feel that emotional connection or that emotional responsibility to a mentee. I don't think I had that. I didn't get that until much later. And so what that caused was 
a sense of isolation beyond just like my close network of friends. I mean, I, I was a social person, don't get me wrong. I wasn't um, feeling completely socially isolated. It was more from a career development standpoint. So I came from Rialto, California. Um, actually, I was born in Pomona, California, but then I, we moved to Rialto. And to accept someone at the age of 16 were from a family that, you know, my parents had very minimal education. And just to say, she's going to be able to figure it out. You know, I mean, I think perhaps that's a fair assumption given where I was able to, to go prior to getting to college. Like, you know, yes, I was able to be elected as the youngest student body president for my school. I was on academic decathlon. I was able to navigate some things. But I think a small a smaller high school is very different than like this huge conglomerate of like the UC system and getting into medical school. So yes, I was able to eventually figure it out. I'm a very motivated person, but I, I always think about like where, what else could I have accomplished during that time? Where else could I have gone? What else could I have done or how else could I have led? What skills would I have gained had I had some sort of a support system there? So we hear a lot of talk about finding a mentor and the power of mentorship, but there isn't as much conversation on what as a mentee you can do to give back or to ensure that there is a two-way street between the mentee and the mentor. And a lot of times mentees feel like the mentor is contributing so much more than what the mentee can contribute given their lack of either experience or wisdom um, or at the time, the situation that they're in, what they can contribute as a whole. What would you tell mentees as to how you can contribute or succeed as a mentee and really develop authentically and cultivate a relationship between the mentor and the mentee? Okay, that's a lot. And that is such an important question. So let me try to break it down. The first thing I will say is people usually first start off nervous to ask someone to be their mentor. And I just want to normalize that I understand the discomfort I understand the anxiety about it, but I will say that when someone asks to meet with me, I take it as a compliment. It is the ultimate compliment for someone to say, will you meet with me? Um, I, I respect what you have said or written or done, and I would love to learn more from you. So I, I think most people would feel that sense of um, like an, an honor that someone would reach out to me. And if they say no, it's generally speaking going to be because of scheduling. Like I'm, I'm just too busy right now, but come back in six months and I'd be happy to meet with you versus they don't like you as an individual, especially if they don't know you. So I just want to make that a statement because oftentimes that's the biggest obstacle. When it comes to your role, your role, your primary or secondary role is definitely not to make sure that the mentor is feeling um, recognized or appreciated. But I will talk about that in a second in regards to how you can make them feel that way. Because I think it is a nice touch. Mm. I think the first thing, your first role is to figure out what your needs are. What do you, what skills do you have? What, what ambitions are clear? Um, but do a, a, like a reflection exercise and think about where you are today and where you would like to go. And that just requires you just to think you don't have to commit but to come into a relationship saying, you know, I'm currently a second year medical student. I really want to go to medical school and I need someone who's going to help me get there to look at my current CV and say, where are the gaps? And then, and so now you know what you're asking the mentor for every once in a while, actually not 
that infrequently, I, I get you know a request to meet, and it's very clear they have not thought about themselves first um, and what they want. I'm not upset about it, but it's just harder for me to help. Yeah, it's much easier if you have thought about what your needs are and where you are. And so then the second part after you've done that would be the the operational task. And so what that means is you are totally responsible for driving the ship, steering the ship, driving the train, driving the car, (laughs) any, whatever automobile or vehicle you want to use in that analogy, you are responsible for its control. And so what does that mean? That means things like um, sending out the initial email to set up the conversation, making sure that you send them dates that you can meet and times that you can meet, setting up the calendar invite. I say that because oftentimes people will try to set up a meeting with me, you know, be it like text message or in person. And like, I have so much going on and you should assume your mentor has a lot going on. Even if they don't, just always assume that. And so you send them a calendar invite with the time, with the date. That's correct. Both those should be correct with the agenda, if you can, with the Zoom link, if you can. If you're not meeting on Zoom, then the location in person you're going to meet. With the agenda, with the CV or any sort of documents that need to be reviewed. Then it's all in the calendar invite. So they don't have to search via email the day before the meeting or anything like that. So there's like, you know, I need you to write me a letter of recommendation, please. And in the calendar invite, you would put the link to the website that they would upload the letter to or whatever. You just want to make sure it's a clean package so that when they are doing that task, it's all there. So I always think about if I'm sending someone an invite. In fact, I have a meeting with someone I'm setting up right now. And I, I told them when I sent the email request for the meeting, like once the meeting is confirmed, I'll create an agenda. I'll put it in the invite with the Zoom link as well as my CV in case you need to review it. So I, I do all of those things. I Even though I do a lot of mentorship, I'm a mentee as well. And so those are the things that I do that makes it easier for them. Then the third thing, so the first is reflection. The second is being an operational leader. And then the third would be, yes, showing some form of appreciation. You should never have to spend money, by the way. Like that is, that is not anything that anyone's looking for. But there are some things that I have done and that I've that I have um, done to help my mentors feel recognized. Um, one is I thank them, obviously, in real time afterwards. You can send a nice email about how helpful it was. Um, two, if you know that they have a supervisor or a boss or someone you can um, reach out to, sending a quick email to them saying, thank you so much, um, uh, Professor Smith was so helpful in these ways. I just wanted you to know um, that he's helping students or she's helping students. The other way would be awards. So there's a lot of like mentor awards that are out there. Um, If you feel like you have developed a relationship that's strong enough um, and you have enough examples and concrete evidence or examples of what they've done for you, like nominating them for an award is really nice. The award is nice, honestly, but I think actually everyone's awesome will nominate me for something. I, I think, and then they'll send me the letter that they wrote just so I can read it. And that is like the most amazing part of it. The, the award is nice, but like reading those words is really sweet um, and special. And then there's some like public displays of affection that you can do, like creating a tweet on Twitter and then tagging that person and thanking them publicly. Or if you get an award yourself, thanking them for being a sponsor. Um, if someone sets set you up for a lecture or a talk, you would say, I'm so excited to be giving this talk again. 
thank you so much to Dr. Jones for nominating me to give that lecture. And those are just nice ways of saying, okay, I'm, someone is someone is seeing the work that I'm that I'm doing that they're doing. And so I think that I put it third because it should not be at the forefront at all of the relationship, but it's a nice thing that helps keep it going. Thank you so much for sharing. Those are the some of the best practical skills I've I've heard about cultivating that relationship. And if people listening were to take anything from this, what would that be? Is it don't be afraid to reach out to someone? I mean, there's there's so much fear of being rejected or not getting a response or someone not having the time. And so often people don't reach out at all. Yeah, I mean, so you end up in the same spot if you don't reach out and, and if they say no, you'll for sure not have a meeting if you don't reach out. That is certain. And um, unless by by miracle, by chance, they they reach out to you. But I think, um, and that does happen. I do that sometimes. But let's just say it's a complete stranger, right? Or someone you don't really have a relationship with. You could assume that if you never reach out, chances are um, you won't ever have a meeting with that person. So you you end up in the same spot as if they say if they say no. Um, but the, uh, I think the difference would be that you get to practice creating a voice practice crafting an email. So at the very least, you've developed some skills with trying to recruit people to become part of your team. Mm -hmm. And if you keep getting a lot of no's, then it might be worth doing some self-reflection and thinking about what am I doing wrong? Like, why is it that no one wants to mentor me? Maybe I'm asking too much. Maybe it's too vague. I usually start with just asking for a 20-minute meeting. That example I gave a second ago about how I'm meeting with someone, hopefully next week there, I just ask for 20 minutes of their time. And to me, it's like, you know, when you're buying something at the store and it's $9.99 versus $10, like that extra penny makes you want to buy it more. And so giving them a shorter window of 20 minutes versus 30, I think lowers that bar of entry for them. So I... I recommend um, asking for just enough time to get to know them. And the things I'm generally looking for when I'm having a meeting with someone, well, there are three things. The first is if our knowledge, if they're not, the knowledge that they have fills the gaps that I have. So I'm looking at their um, capacity to teach me what I'm interested in learning about. Um, the second is if their schedules match mine. So if I'm looking for to write a big project with some, a paper with someone or do a big project with something, someone, and I need someone to help me through that. And they're like, I can give you one hour every three months. They're not a good fit because they're not going to be able to support you if you need more than that. The third is the energy slash personality or persona. It's like, do we vibe? Like, do I like the way you communicate? Do we have social identities that overlap? Are you also type B and I'm type B and I need someone who's low energy, low stress? Like it's more, it's more about like, is this actually a fun and conversation? Is that it's beyond just like productive? It's like, is it fun? Am I enjoying it? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think about those three things. And and honestly, it's nice if there's some overlap between all three. Mm-hmm. I don't think it has to be perfect, right? Because that's going to stall you if you're looking for perfection. But those are the three things I consider. Wow. Thank you. For all of that. So I want to turn to this Vogue article and we're going to link this on our Instagram. So everyone listening can go find that. It's also online. It went viral and it's titled one ER doctor reflects on a career of being the only black person in the room. So I want to read off a few key quotes from the article. 
there is a quote you had mentioned, quote, how do you know you'll find good mentorship from someone you just met? One faculty member responded, quote, choose someone similar to you. Around me was a dense space of white coats and white faces. You talked briefly about imposter syndrome and how you weren't really able to identify with the term and quote, I was not an imposter. I had been conditioned to feel unwelcome. I'd been guided to believe the problem of feeling excluded and unworthy was mine to own. You later went on to say at 35, uh, I'm now an emergency medicine physician and a faculty member at Harvard Medical School for the past four years. I've sat alone as the sole black woman faculty member in my departmental meetings, committees, and clinical spaces. Like many other Black faculty in this country, I carry a burden to lead diversity and inclusion efforts, a task within medicine that falls typically on the the very people who feel isolated and unsupported in the first place. And then you later went on to say, um, I know my voice carries less weight than that of a male, white male colleagues. There's also widespread denial I have to contend with denial that barriers against Black women still exist. When I have called out microaggressions or episodes of more overt racism, I've been accused of overemphasizing harmless behavior. This article, and I told you this before we started recording, was so incredibly powerful. It deserves to be read by more people than have already seen it, even though it has gone viral. This was very brave to write and to publish. What has... Now that all these months have passed, this was published in February 2021, what has come out that has surprised you or has there been reactions and more discussion around some of what you've written? Have people reached out and shared some of their own experiences? Thank you for reading it. Yes, I mean, to all of that. So um, I think it was well-received. There's There are always people who are going to deny my experience and your experience as a woman. And, and we are always experts on how we live our lives and, and, and how our interactions with others affect us. And so I was writing from a place of really being an expert in what happened to me. Mm-hmm. And that's what I relied on as I wrote the article, because I was afraid of people either denying what I wrote or being offended by it. And, you know, even like my chair, because there were comments there about my department. And I said, you know, I'm writing about the department in which, you know, he recruits for this department. So like he's aware of the numbers. And so when I wrote the article, I thought about the messaging because I didn't want him to feel like this article is about him in isolation. He's a wonderful person. Honestly, he really he's an amazing boss. But the problem is system wide. And so I'm using my current situation as an example, because I realized, I know that many women of color feel the same way, no matter where they are in academia, that they're the only ones that, and that there's not much of a, of a supportive system for them. And so we're often told, oh, you feel that way because you have imposter syndrome. Mm. But to me, it's like, I never felt fraudulent. I never felt like I'm pretending to be something I'm not. Like, I've always felt like I've been my authentic self. And so when I hear that, I'm like, I don't think I have imposter syndrome. Like there might be some times where I do have it and that's okay. Like there are, there could be some instances where I feel like in this one small room of this huge house, like there I might have imposter syndrome, but for the entire, you know, architect of the structure, I I was just like, 
this is not imposter syndrome. This is this is more of a of an experience where I feel isolated because of my race, because of the, my race and gender combined. And it it was coming from all different places. You know, it was it was coming from high school, college, medical school, residency. It's here now. I mean, I had actually way more examples, but they're like we can cut some of these out. You know, that it's it's pervasive and. It really wasn't like one experience that made me feel this way. It was it was the repetitive trauma of it all. So I felt like, why would I like if it, it, it felt unfair to myself to um, try to convince myself that I shouldn't be speaking about things that have clearly happened to me and that I know are happening to others. And one of the things that you know, being at Harvard, I feel like there is this sense of responsibility to use this platform to say what maybe others might feel uncomfortable saying at other institutions, speaking for others. So I think the most rewarding comments came from women of color who were in smaller academic places saying, thank you so much for saying it. I'm the only woman of color here. Not all of them are black, but I'm the only woman of color in my department. I have felt so alone and you've been able to describe it in a way that I haven't been able to say publicly. So that was what meant the most to me was was hearing that, seeing other people feel empowered to speak about their experiences as well. That was so brave to share. And thank you. And I know that pushed the needle forward. We're going to link this. So I hope everyone listening will go on to read this as well. We're going to link it on our social media. So I want to quickly ask you about something there was this TikTok that went viral about women of color in academia, in the dating scene, and just women in general who go on to get a higher education and earn all these different degrees. And there are so many different ways you have to act, whether it's in dating or whether it's in a professional capacity where you have to be warm, but also walk this balance of coming across as serious and professional and all these different stigmas and stereotypes. And you kind of reference that very briefly in the Vogue article but I would love your take on how, if if you've ever thought about having to navigate being taken seriously, but also as a woman being warm, but also just some of these nuances. It's always been important to me to be my authentic self, who I feel like I want to be at that moment uh, and, and who I feel like I am at that moment versus how someone wants me to behave. The way I'm communicating with you right now is how I communicate with my husband and my parents. Like it's it's pretty much the same. And I used to, I would say for an example, I used to be on, um, nervous about emails because mm-hmm. I am a very direct person. And so I used to put a lot of smiley faces and like exclamation points <laughs> and, you know, he, he, he's in my emails. And I'm like, what, what am I doing? And, and and I realized, I mean, this is like a recent change. I realized I'm like, I'm just trying to become or to be perceived as friendly and non-threatening in emails. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to soften a lot of the directed comments or requests that I was asking, you know, some of my administrative staff or other people, my peers, by putting these things in there. It's like, I'm see, I'm so my I'm so friendly, but I need that, I need you to email me back. I need that document signed. Okay, thanks. Like I, I was like, I'm not doing that anymore. Like I'm not like my male colleagues aren't doing that anymore. And there was an example that I saw where someone had asked for feedback, and I had given my feedback in a very 
soft way. I was using a lot of likes and perhaps and maybe we can consider. And so my message actually probably got lost mm. um, or it just wasn't impactful and clear. Right. And then another male colleague on the thread said literally the exact same thing I said, but without all that other messaging. Mm. And so I went through that. Honestly, this is a really, this is a real exercise. I went through my email and I cut out all of that stuff that I had padding my ultimate comment. And it was pretty much the same thing. And I don't think he was plagiarized. I'm not at all saying that he was the problem here. I'm saying that I was afraid to be that level of, to have that level of directness. And so, I mean, since then, I will, that was a very enlightening moment for me. That was like a year ago or so. And I posted that on Twitter, actually. I said, from now on, my emails will not have smiley faces or exclamation points. And honestly, I try to live that way because it's like, you know what? I'm an adult. Like, I'm a professional. I, you should know me as a friendly person. I am direct, though. I am clear. And I like to have, you know, actionable outcomes. But I'm not like, I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad about those things. But I just feel like we have to, let's just move the conversation along. And so I've, I've really, I've changed the way I communicate those things. And, and I'll sort of wrap up by saying, there are instances where we feel uncomfortable being ourselves and, or, or we feel uncomfortable with how the world might perceive our authentic self. And I really think the only way to change that is to be present and to show them who we really are and that we can succeed both in the educational environment and the workplace as our true authentic selves. And until we stop, you know, masking who we are, until we start hiding behind terms that really don't describe us and our situation, we'll never really have this space where people can really fully see our true potential. I completely agree. And Dr. Landry, thank you so much for joining this podcast episode. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to an episode of Redefining Ambition. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe rate us, tell your friends. And if there's anyone you think we should have on our show, let me know. Join me next Tuesday for a brand new episode of Redefining Ambition. We'll see you all then. Take care, everyone.